0: I would speak to you in the name of the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Some time ago, my family and I took a trip to Lake Placid, New York, a picturesque little town that hosted the Winter Olympics in 1932 and 1980. The highlight of the 1980 games was unquestionably the U.S. men's hockey team. But 1932 also had memorable athletes whose stories are told in the local Winter Olympics museum. One of these was Sonja Henny, a Norwegian figure skater who won gold medals, three gold medals in a row, 1928, 1932, and 1936. On the ice, she was mesmerizing. She transformed women's skating and holds records still today. Off the ice, she was beautiful and fiercely ambitious, and parlayed her Olympic triumphs into Hollywood stardom. She was a media sensation, and in 1940, she became a U.S. citizen. Sonia Henney loved the wealth and fame. She could not get enough of it. Nevertheless, she had a problem. Even though, to become an American citizen, she had renounced allegiance to all foreign princes and potentates, one troubling association seemed to linger. During her long skating career, she performed often in Germany. At some point along the way, she became acquainted with Adolf Hitler and other Nazi leaders. When Germany hosted the 1936 Winter Olympics, witnesses claimed that Henny honored Hitler with a Nazi salute, though she herself would deny it. What she could not deny, though, was her acceptance of a luncheon invitation at Hitler's home. There, the German dictator presented her with a signed, framed portrait of himself. In 1940, the Germans invaded Norway, Henny's native country, where she maintained her family home and other properties. She had become fantastically wealthy. Strangely, none of her buildings or belongings were confiscated or even damaged when much else was destroyed. Why were her possessions untouched? Henny had directed that her personal portrait of Hitler be displayed atop the grand piano in the living room of her family estate. There it remained throughout the war, an outward and visible sign that Sonia Henny had not sufficiently renounced the evil powers of this world. She had not fully and finally said, farewell to her former allegiances and acquaintances. In today's reading from the Gospel of Matthew, we find John the Baptist exactly where he was five weeks ago today, on the banks of the Jordan River, wearing his classic camel's hair coat, leather belt, and first-century Palestinian flip-flops, baptizing people in who came out to him uh, from the wilderness to uh, the Jordan River. John preached to them that something big was about to happen. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. The Messiah of God was soon to appear. The Jews had long held to the promise that God would send a ruler who would be the true king of Israel. The Messiah would unite the people and lead them along right pathways of truth and mercy. It would be a new age. He would come to break oppression, to set the captives free, to take away oppression and rule in equity. What did the people need to do to be ready? Two things. The first was repent. To repent is to turn. Turning toward the kingdom of heaven and embracing it would necessarily mean turning away from their old allegiances. It would entail renouncing Satan, turning their backs on the evil powers of the world, and refusing to relent to their own sinful desires. The second thing people would need to do in order to be ready for the kingdom was baptism. Baptism would be the outward and visible sign of their inward and spiritual turning. John would take them down into the water to be cleansed of their sins, to be washed free of their former ways. Baptism should de- would demand their all, but it would be a small price to pay for salvation. John preached, and the prophets before him foretold, that when the kingdom of heaven truly takes root on earth, everyone wins. God's righteousness, God's way of love prevails. All four Gospels tell us that in those days Jesus of Nazareth came to John and presented himself for baptism. Frankly, it's an event that has puzzled, even baffled Christians from the earliest days of the church, and we can see evidence of the confusion in Matthew's version of Jesus' baptism that we heard just a moment ago. Matthew records that John didn't want to baptize Jesus. John thought Jesus, should baptize him? The question that Matthew places on the lips of John himself goes something like this. If Jesus were truly God's chosen, anointed, beloved Son, the Messiah, without sin, why would he submit to John's baptism? John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins, for turning away from the old life, presumably Nothing about John's baptism would apply to Jesus. So why did he do it? Over the centuries, countless scholars and faithful Christians have proposed their theories, many of which have much merit. By going down into the water, Jesus was identifying with sinful humanity, the sinful humanity he came to save. By submitting to baptism, Jesus was coming aware of his unique identity as God's beloved Son. So go the theories. Dare we add another? Dare we take another crack at it? Perhaps we should. Today, as we celebrate this feast we call the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, a strange thing has occurred. We have no baptisms at all, not a one, all day. We have no cute babies to distract us from what may be a real grown-up adult meaning of baptism. We have no uncles from Poughkeepsie with cameras around their necks recording something they do not understand. No babies, no baptisms. Jesus was not a baby when John baptized him. So what did baptism mean for him? I see a clue in what Jesus said when presenting himself to John for baptism. Let it be so for now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. The key concept here is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the love of God. In Jesus, the kingdom had come. The love of God became flesh, a person whose mission was and is to advance God's power of love on earth. When Jesus said to John his baptism was to fulfill all righteousness, he might otherwise have said that his vocation was to continue the forward momentum of the kingdom. In order to advance the kingdom, Jesus had to move forward with his life. Indeed, he had to leave behind one chapter of his life in order to embrace the next. He had to turn away from the old to move into the new. So one way to think about Jesus' baptism is not a renouncing, but a launching from one phase to the next. Consider, at his baptism, Jesus was leaving behind his daily life in Nazareth. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus was about thirty years old at the time. What we know about those thirty years is very little. He was the carpenter's son, his mother was Mary, he had brothers and sisters, and he lived in the town of Nazareth. We can assume that the rhythms and rituals of first-century Judaism governed his life. They were probably years of formation and study of the scriptures, particularly the prophets. Life was familiar, predictable, comfortable. But for the kingdom to to advance, Jesus would have to turn from Nazareth. His baptism was the launch. He saw the heavens opened and the Spirit of God descending on him. Then he heard the voice of the Lord declare, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It was a clear sign to turn from what was to what would be. It was farewell, Nazareth. Hello, whatever comes next. What came next for Jesus? After a period of deep reflection in the wilderness, His ministry in the surrounding region of Galilee would follow to fulfill God's righteousness, to advance the kingdom. Jesus would spend the next three years gathering His disciples. He would teach them, preach to the multitudes, and perform miracles to demonstrate that the kingdom of God was at hand. But if the kingdom were to continue its forward momentum, the phase of ministry and miracles in Galilee would need to end. Once again, Jesus would have to turn. Farewell, Galilee. Hello, whatever comes next. Interestingly, another vivid experience would serve as the launching point. To the next phase, we call it the transfiguration when Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John to the top of a mountain. There they had a vision of Moses and Elijah, and they heard the voice of the Lord speak familiar words, "'This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased.'" So it is that the baptism of Jesus meant turning from life in Nazareth to ministry in Galilee, then the transfiguration would launch him from Galilee to the next phase, which would be Jerusalem. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, where he would confront the ruling powers who would stop at nothing to thwart the forward momentum of the kingdom. So much would happen during one week in Jerusalem that it's hard to isolate which moment truly launched the full glory of God's love. In any case, on the night before he died, Jesus said, farewell to the disciples. Farewell to this phase of ministry, at least in the way you've known it. Where I am going, you cannot come, at least not now. What came next? The cross and resurrection, even though the pattern, even then the pattern would continue. And we note that in Matthew, the final words that the risen Jesus speaks to his disciples is the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So imagine the forward momentum of the kingdom would continue through the disciples and their successors. The fulfilling of all righteousness would would launch from the Great Commission and go on from generation to generation. So, how about you? Are you ready to embrace a theology of baptism for grown-ups? Or is it just a thing we do for babies? What we see in the life of Jesus, the adult, is an ongoing pattern of turning from one phase of his mission to the next. For him, the turning didn't necessarily involve renouncing. For him, it was progressing from one good thing to the next great thing the Spirit of the Lord would compel him to do. For you and me, I would suggest that unlike Jesus, We probably have some renouncing to do. Mind you now, I am not accusing anyone of being like Sonia Henney. My guess is that if I were to search every one of your homes from top to bottom, I would not find a single portrait of Hitler atop any piano or anywhere else. Nevertheless, our lives tend to accumulate the weight of sin that clings closely to us and prevents us from running the race God sets before us. Realizing as much can serve as a reminder that baptism for us, as it was for Jesus, is an ongoing dying and rising. It happens not by our own strength but by the power of God's Spirit given to us. This week, as I've pondered the mystery of Jesus' baptism, I searched my memory for people I've known whose lives reflected the baptismal pattern of dying and rising. Many came to mind, but one in particular was a parishioner in the first church I served in Michigan. His name was Alonzo McDonald, otherwise known as Al. By the time I came to know him, Al had long before achieved great success in life. He had been a Marine, a journalist, a business leader, and an academician. At one point, he was the White House Chief of Staff under President Jimmy Carter. He'd climbed the rungs of many ladders, and when he ascended to their heights and peered over the walls they were leaning against, he didn't like what he saw. He confessed that his gods were money, recognition, and power. He saw that he could spend his life chasing after more and more of these, still never to be satisfied. He needed to repent, even to renounce these counterfeit gods. He needed to say farewell to the life of pursuing them. But what would come next? He began asking questions about God and eventually, in his 50s, recommitted himself to Christ. He realized his calling was to embark on a new phase of discipleship. He turned from his former attitudes and embraced a passion for Christian philanthropy. He started a foundation that endows theological professorships at major universities, Oxford and Harvard among them. One Lent, as part of our parish program, we had a series of dinners during which invited guests spoke about the difference faith made in their lives. Al was to speak on the first night, and he did not disappoint. Someone pressed him on what change, if any, his renewed Christian faith had made on his character. Apart from his outward deeds, what about his inner self was different? What was the inward and spiritual grace? I'll never forget what he said. He paused for a moment and then said, it's always tough to pin down the inward and spiritual grace. But for me, it's something like this. When I used to do business deals, I would enjoy watching the other guy lose. When I renewed my commitment to Christ, I no longer enjoyed seeing people lose. I still enjoy doing deals, but now I do them for Christ. I want to see people win." To me, Alonzo MacDonald exemplified the ongoing baptismal pattern of dying and rising with Christ. Indeed, baptism isn't just for babies. It's for all of us, fully grown people who want to follow Jesus from strength to strength in his kingdom from this time forth, even forever. Amen.